Yeah, my name's CJ. Um, I'm on staff with Mockingbird. Um, so yeah, first of all, I just wanted to um, admit up front that I'm very susceptible to losing my train of thought at any given moment. So I am just going to be up here reading uh, to you. So I hope that doesn't get too boring. But if it does, you can just follow along um, with your handouts. Um, so all that said, I, I am pretty excited about the content of this session because um, it's, I just think there is a lot of really good stuff in here. Um, and it's, it's kind of a tricky thing to talk about, I think, um, literature, because whenever two or more are gathered to talk about books, it's like the law is so strong. It's like, have you, have you read this one? And nobody has, and it's like so much pressure. Um, so I really want to, uh, yeah, we're going to actually, um, so I want to talk about Dennis Johnson today. It's going to be the main focus. Um, have, any, have any of you, are any of you familiar with him, his work? Um, he's been published in the New Yorker quite a bit. Um, he's just um, one of these literary guys who's kind of critically acclaimed. Um, but he was an addict in recovery, a Christian, um, and like I said before, one of the greatest fiction writers the last 50 or so years, probably. Um, and and I, I am assuming that some of you may not be familiar with him, um, but some basic facts about Dennis Johnson. He was born in 1949, published his first collection of poetry at age 19 in 1969, um, but he was largely inoperative uh, in his 20s due to intense alcohol and drug abuse, um, which he swore off by age 34 in 1983. Um, he was in and out of rehabs for a number of years, and only once he got sober was he really able to start cranking out his most impressive... I am going to close this, because Sam is such a... Sh- he's so great. Everybody's just going to be... Pro- Clapping all the time. Um, it's going to make me feel really insecure. Um, yeah, yeah, anytime. Just, yeah, thank you. I love this. Um, so, yeah, a couple things I want to do in this breakout are talk about Dennis Johnson himself and his life. Um, I find his, his life story pretty inspiring. Um, second, I actually do want to read some of his stories, which you guys have um, excerpts of. Um, fiction to me is the kind of thing where it's really hard to just cherry pick certain lines and connect them to the Christian message. I think that usually does a, a disservice to the story and to the audience trying to connect with it. So I do want to spend some time just soaking up his work um, as he's constructed it. Um, I want to start off with one of my favorite excerpts. It's a short two-page thing called Silences, which you guys have in full. Um, and it might seem pretty random. It's not immediately like the most Christian excerpt, but um, in my opinion, it's one of the best little flash pieces I've ever read. Um, as a forewarning, there's there are some like kind of awkward moments, which to me are just really funny. So um, don't be afraid to laugh if you sense yourself feeling a little tickled. Um, Dennis Johnson definitely traffics in the absurd, so you can kind of expect that. So um, I'll just start. It's called Silences. <clears throat> After dinner, nobody went home right away. I think we'd enjoyed the meal so much, we hoped Elaine would serve us the whole thing all over again. These were people we've gotten to know a little from Elaine's volunteer work. Nobody from my work, nobody from the ad agency. We sat around in the living room describing the loudest sounds we'd ever heard. One said it was his wife's voice when she told him she didn't love him anymore and wanted a divorce. Another recalled the pounding of his heart when he suffered a coronary. Thea Jones had become a grandmother at the age of 37 and hoped never again to hear anything so loud as her granddaughter crying in her 16-year-old daughter's arms. 
Her husband, Ralph, said it hurt his ears whenever his brother erupted, opened his mouth in public because his brother had Tourette syndrome and erupted with remarks like, I masturbate, your penis smells good, in front of perfect strangers on a bus or during a movie or even in church. Young Chris Case reversed the direction and introduced the topic of silences. He said the most silent thing he'd ever heard was the landmine taking off his right leg outside Kabul, Afghanistan. As for other silences, nobody contributed. In fact, there came a silence now. Some of, us, some of us hadn't realized that Chris had lost a leg. He limped, but only slightly. I hadn't even known he'd fought in Afghanistan. A landmine, I said. Yes, sir, a landmine. Can we see it? Deirdre said. No, ma'am, Chris said. I don't carry landmines around on my person. No, I mean your leg. It was blown off. I mean the part that's still there. I'll show you, he said, if you kiss it. Shocked laughter. We started talking about the most ridiculous things we'd ever kissed. Nothing of interest. We'd all kiss only people and only in the usual places. All right, then, Chris told Deirdre. Here's your chance for the conversation's most unique entry. No, I don't want to kiss your leg. Although none of us showed it, I think we all felt a little irritated with Deirdre. We all wanted to see. Morton Sands was there, too, that night, and for the most part, he'd managed to keep quiet. Now he said, Jesus Christ, Deirdre. Oh, well. Okay, she said. Chris pulled up his right pant leg, bunching the cuff about halfway up his thigh, and detached his prosthesis, a device of chromium bars and plastic belts strapped to his knee, which was intact and swiveled upward horribly to present the puckered end of his leg. Deirdre got down on her bare knees before him, and he hitched forward in his seat, the couch, Ralph Jones is sitting beside him, to move the scarred stump within two inches of Deirdre's face. Now she started to cry. Now we were all embarrassed, a little ashamed. For nearly a minute, we waited. Then Ralph Jones said, Chris, I remember when you fought two guys at once outside Ace's Tavern. No kidding, Jones told the rest of us. He went outside with these two guys and beat the crap out of both of them. Guess I could have given them a break, Chris said. They were both pretty drunk. Chris, you sure kicked some ass that night. In the pocket of my shirt, I had a wonderful Cuban cigar. I wanted to step outside with it. The dinner had been one of our best, and I wanted to top off the experience with a satisfying smoke. But you want to see how this sort of thing turns out. How often will you witness a woman kissing an amputation? Jones, however, had ruined everything by talking. He'd broken the spell. Chris worked the prosthesis back into place and tightened the straps and rearranged his pant leg. Deirdre stood up and wiped her eyes and smoothed her skirt and took her seat, and that was that. The outcome of all of this was that Chris and Deirdre, about six months later, down at the courthouse, in the presence of very nearly the same group of friends, were married by a magistrate. Yes, their husband and wife. You and I know what goes on. <laughs> um, so I really love that, that last little twist at the end. Um, I think this story is just so representative of Johnson's work. Parts of it are pretty intense, obviously. There's the amputation, the landmine. There's the really uncomfortable social pressure put on Deirdre. Um, but it's also pretty funny and surprisingly tender in those last few sentences. Um, this group of friends who, on the surface, seem pretty superficial, find a poignant moment of connection through this awkward, almost like recklessly intimate situation. Um, in the end, they're gathered together in the courthouse to witness the union of two unlikely characters. Um, 
might be a stretch to say, but I really do think there's something Christian about the general arc of, of this story um, through the absurd and absurdly uncomfortable scenario, um, a very weird and personal love connection is made. Um, Silences is taken from a larger work called The Largesse of the Sea Maiden. I'm not sure what that title has to do with this particular story, um, but I have heard Dennis Johnson say that um, sometimes a title just sounds good. And as a writer, um, when a good title comes along and chooses you, you just have to go with it. Um, So Largesse of the Sea Maiden is a good title for a number of reasons. I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that I didn't know what the word largesse meant when I started reading this. So for anyone who is like me, I have the definition printed out on the top of your handout. Um, As defined by Google, largesse is a generosity in bestowing money or gifts upon others. In other words, this is a fancy and poetic word for grace, um, which, as we know, is an unmerited uh, gift from God. I also don't think it's a stretch to point out um, that the idea of a sea maiden evokes something beautiful and mysterious, Um, She's a fantasy character who's perhaps not even quite human. So I am taking the liberty of reading this collection as as nothing less than a gift uh, from God. Um, Yeah, Johnson, like I said, was a a Christian. We'll get to that more. But um, I don't think he would have found that a surprising interpretation, to say the least. Um, His most well-known collection uh, is a collection of short stories called Jesus' Son, which is basically a series of vignettes strung together. Um, they're all narrated by the same young man whose life is figuratively and literally in a ditch, um, oftentimes. Um, the most famous story in that collection is called Car Crash While Hitchhiking. Um, and that's a story that you'll hear writers from the New Yorker referencing a lot, and the Paris Review is always recycling it on their front page. Um, we don't have time to read it. I don't have it printed there, but um, the title... It's called Car Crash While Hitchhiking. tells you the basic gist of the story. Um, It's about a young hitchhiker who, late on a dark and stormy night, gets into a car, which soon after crashes. Um, The really interesting thing about it, though, for me, is that the narrator in that story, um, the hitchhiker, he's on drugs, and he's at a very low point in his life. He's confused, ashamed, guilt-ridden. So what Johnson does so skillfully with that story is like, yes, he's your classic unreliable narrator, but at the same time, he's also a prophet of sorts because he knows, this narrator knows what's going to happen in the story before it happens. Um, He says, I knew every raindrop by its name. I sensed everything before it happened. I knew that a certain Oldsmobile would stop for me even before it slowed. By the sweet voices of the family inside, I knew we'd have an accident in the storm. He says that right at the very beginning. Um... So he kind of has this supernatural, like, prophecy-type experience, even though he's, um, yeah, totally yeah, totally beside himself with drugs. Um, so you have to wonder what Johnson's motive could possibly be in employing such a bizarre narrative technique. Um, when you consider that Johnson, Johnson himself was an addict in recovery and a Christian, you might realize that he was communicating something very profound there. And the narrator is by all accounts, completely destitute, cycling in unmanageability and despair. Um, But he's the only one in the story who knows the truth. So much like the fool in King Lear, um, yeah, he's he's at his lowest, but he's the one who who speaks the truth. Um, And this is a theme in Johnson's work. The characters who go furthest to the bottom can see reality for what it is. Um, For Johnson, this is where sanctification happens, or in literary terms, character development. Um, 
So on your handouts, there's a little uh, kind of a funny diagram. It's a little corny. Um, you might have seen it before at like a church camp or something. I encountered it during college, um, but I actually think it's a really good model. So um, it shows these two um, lines spreading out, and there's a, that there's a positive correlation between our level of awareness of our sinfulness and our need um, for God's grace, our understanding of God's grace. So in other words, the lower you go, the more important the absolution of the cross becomes. So in my reading, Johnson's work really takes this shape. His characters go straight to the bottom of the barrel. Um, At one point, the narrator of Jesus' son, um, he's the same narrator as we were just uh, discussing, who had that prophetic experience. At some moment, he's peering through a window, peeking into a stranger's bathroom. He's watching a woman bathe. Um, And the narrator says, how could I do it? How could a person go that low? And I understand your question, to which I reply, are you kidding? That's nothing. I'd been much lower than that, and I expected to see myself do worse. And so as this narrator spirals lower and transgresses further, he has these little moments of grace or um, transcendence or reconciliation. And they're subtle, but they're also that much more powerful, that much more emotional, because grace is, that grace is so important. He needs it so much. Um, which do- reminds me, obviously, of what Jesus said um, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. St. Paul wrote, um, This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And Dennis Johnson was eager to get his characters to that point of the last bit, to say, like, that's me. I'm the absolute worst. Um, And then he offers them redemption, or at least leaves, leaves the door open for it. Um, <clears throat> take a drink of water real quick before I lose my ability to talk. Um, so Johnson passed away almost a year ago in May, age 67, um, from liver cancer, which I think was probably related to al- a life of alcoholism. Um, he was reluctant to do interviews about his fiction. I think he probably wanted his work to speak for itself in a way. Um, but he was even more reluctant to speak about his religious life, at least to the press. However, after his death last year, several moving tributes showed up to him, showed up in the media um, from friends who knew him. Um, so a particularly powerful one was published um, this past Christmas in the Los Angeles Review of Books by one of Johnson's friends. His name's Brian B. Dill. Um, and he wrote this. I'm just going to kind of read this, give you some background on his religious life. So Brian Dill writes... I had the incredible good fortune to be Dennis's friend, and I know some of his beliefs concerning God and religion. I observed him practicing his spiritual disciplines, which included prayer and daily readings of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the Bible, and A Course in Miracles. I'm a massive fan of his writing. I believe Dennis's faith suffuses his writings. Dennis believed he was personally affected by miracles and that God is supernaturally active in individuals' lives in profound and unexpected ways. God saved Dennis from alcoholism and addiction through Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. Dennis dedicated two of his novels to HP, which I assume stands for higher power. I'm tempted to say that in the the firmament of, um, I'm tempted to say that in the firmament of Dennis's beliefs, faith in a higher power at work through AA is the fixed star. Substance abuse and addiction figure prominently in his fiction, and plays uh, in his plays, and he always extends to his characters the possibility of the same grace that he himself experienced. Um, so this man 
Dill goes on to say that Johnson's view of faith was more experiential than, say, like intellectual. Um, Johnson wasn't very interested in denominational conflicts or church politics, which is why I think he's a particularly profound person to be talking about with this theme of grace and divided times. Um, he once said that even though he identified as a Christian, he was certain that other Christians would think he was going to hell. Um, so Dill continues in his tribute. He says, viewed from the perspective of AA, doctrinal disagreements and accusations of heresy can seem like a narcissism of small differences and thus suitable subjects for ridicule. This perspective dovetails with that of, De- of Dennis's hero, Walt Whitman, who in his introduction to Leaves of Grass says, argue not concerning God. Dennis felt that paying attention to or participating in these disagreements obscured the most important thing about God, which is that he is active in our lives. Dennis believed in the power of prayer. In 2007, he told me that he had an an addiction relapse while in Vietnam doing research for his um, award-winning novel, Tree of Smoke, um, and that prayer was what saved him. He and I prayed for one another, and as we both went through cancer diagnoses and treatments, um, as we went through cancer diagnoses and treatments. He says, I was surprised when he died because he had shared that his treatment for liver cancer was successful. I had thought he was in the clear. I now suspect he was simply adopting a perspective increasingly aligned with the eternal. One of his last emails to me paraphrased the the message of Julian of of Norwich received from God. All is well. All will be well. All was always going to be well. Um, so I just think that's really powerful um, because a lot of, yeah, I feel like a lot of critics read read Johnson's work and don't know that that's the backstory, kind of that's the energy behind it. Um, and I think it, it kind of changes everything once you know that and um, it breathes such, such life into his writing. So um, now I want to read a series of excerpts from a, it's a longer short story, um, but I've printed off, I've kind of compiled some, some of the excerpts in your handout. Um, it's called The Starlight on Idaho. Um, yeah, so you can follow along. Um, it might seem a little bit choppy. Um, that's because I'm kind of skipping through it for the sake of time. Thank you guys for coming. Yeah, and you take care. Um, I'm kind of skipping through it for the sake of time, but that's marked by the ellipses and, and the excerpts. Um, but it's also choppy because the story itself is just a compilation of letters written to various people by an addict experiencing a painful withdrawals. Um, while in rehab. Um, So keep in mind, though, that Johnson was a poet before he was a fiction writer. So even if it seems kind of choppy, he really wanted every word um, to be exactly like it is. So, Um, Also, again, in this section, there's some R-rated language, um, but I think a lot of it's just really funny, so no censorship. Um, Here um, here it goes. Um, I'm going to take another sip of the water. Um, Dear Pope John Paul, do you have two first names, or is Paul your last name, like you're Mr. Paul? And I know it's not just dumb luck. I know I ordered the circumstances. At first, I was interested in getting high. I like to laugh at nothing and get my feet crossed and go down on my ass. Then later, it was torture, but it was a button I could push to destroy the known world. I mean, it's like I get that glass as far as just touching against my lower lip, and the next thing I know, I'm on the ghost bus to Vegas. There's a certain power in that, you know? It's like if you don't like the movie you're in, you just grab this jug going by, and it takes you and flings you into a completely different story. 
What do they feed you when you're the Pope? Try the stuff around here sometime. For lunch, they give you a marshmallow and a coffee bean. <laughs> um, it's a salvage yard for people who totaled their souls called the Starlight Recovery Center in Ukiah, California, on Idaho Avenue. Ah, hell, what's wrong with me? I won't be sending no letter to the Pope. But I'm telling you, I think I've been dealing with the devil, and I could use some expert coaching. There really is a devil. He really does talk to me. And I think it might be coming from some anabuse giving me side effects. But be that as it may, I need to know the rules. So far, I think I've found out that I don't have to obey his orders. I can just ignore him, sort of. But if I keep passing him off, is he going to get after my people? Mark Cassandra. Dear Satan, Senor Mr. Business, you're one big fucking bubble. And I'd hate to be there when you go pop. Because then I'd get a, re- a lot of really rank stuff on me. I mean, I'm here to change or die trying, but all I can think about is, is if this was still the old starlight, the motel of bad dreams, I'd scrape together a couple hundred dollars and lay up here drunk until they spelled my corpse and broke the lock. But everything changes, and the starlight's all new and different, and I'd better get new and different too and find a better way of filling up than alcohol. I like the thing this guy Wendell was saying in group. He put out the idea of pouring in the right thoughts into our poison thinking, like pouring good water into a glass of dirty water until I'm filling up and spilling over and just keep going like that until I'm running clean. My grandma put it that, Cass, if you keep drinking, your babies will come out cross-eyed and you'll end up buried in a strange town with your name spelled wrong on your grave. Dear Sis, this is, uh, this is the long, one of the longer ones, but it, gets, it goes crazy. Um, dear sis, here I am, yep again, the same old story. But this time I swear it's feeling different. You're the one person I've never jived, so that's as far as I'll go with that one. It's feeling different, that's as much as I'll swear to. If you want to come to family group, you can. I have had one family group, but nobody came but dear old grandma, and that led to an incident. I realize you're stuck in Dallas, but if you come home for, for a vacation, I wouldn't mind seeing a friendly face. And if it was my sister Marigold, I'd be smiling. Marigold, sister Marigold, my noble young Petunia. It's every Sunday, 2 p.m. You'll do better than Grandma, I'd lay odds. She didn't have a word to say, not until about 3.15. Family group gr- goes for two hours. The wives, husbands, children, any close people, they all come for group therapy mostly sitting with rods up their butts and every face pulled tight. Nobody knows if they're going to get ratted out, get their covers pulled. Playing it close, in other words, as far as their twisted little games they play with their loved ones. Jerry, <clears throat> Jerry asking, what would you say to your loved one? And they say, I don't know, I pass, like that. But this one guy, Calvin, who's been in these places plenty, he looks at his wife when it's their turn and just comes out with, he looked at her, I love you. He was looking straight at her, and he was sniffling, crying. She looked at him and went, I, I, I. She looked at him like he was trying to get her to jump from a high-rise fire to save, to save herself, but she just couldn't quite say something real. I don't care about these people, Calvin said. I don't give a damn about anything except that I loved you, that I love you. I love you too, she said. Baby, I love you too. And while we all watched, and I mean Grandma too, this couple were embracing and crying for about five minutes. I don't know how much good, how much long-run good it does to be doing that, but I tell you this, it certainly livens up family day when you see that kind of thing happening. It just keeps the whole thing fascinating. So I was going to tell you about Grandma. So Jerry there, 
<clears throat> they call him the counselor or facilitator, Jerry. At the start of the session, he comes out with a pretty harmless lecture about how the booze isn't anybody's fault. It might be in the genes, in the blood, inherited. Grandma's sitting there like, a, like Sunday school with her hands in her lap for, I'd say, one and one half hours. Never a peep until she's cutting her eyes at Jerry. I mean, they're down to burning slits, man. And right in the middle of somebody else's stuff, she just lays into him with something, something to the effect of, Jerry, if that's really your name, I think you'd climb a tree and tell a lie before you'd stand on the ground and tell the natural truth. Jerry's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And she just, up, she just draws up another lungful of this good old California air, which she always claims is poison, and says, do you mean to say that you're going to pin all this on me, his grandmother, and on my ancestors too, when we're good not to holla mountain people? who should have never left North Carolina, and my husband wrote speeches for the mayor of Odessa, Texas, and our blood's as good as yours, and you say it's passing down alcoholic generations like the sins of the fathers, and rolls right along with the whole bittersweet lecture of her own about, you've got to stand on your own two feet and not blame your relatives for your own miserable mistakes. With her face three inches from Jerry's, he looked like he was ready to go out and hang himself. I enjoyed that. Needless to say, the subject of Jesus came up in this discussion right about 13 seconds into it. The Alcoholics Anonymous is an arm of Satan, and you, must, you might as well get that through your head and shut your trap and so on. Like I say, they hold family group on Sundays at 2, 2 p.m., 2 to 4 p.m., and I'm required to be in attendance, like I say. And if I don't have any family at family group, what's the point? I'm sort of pointlessly there, so you're invited. I mean, if they ever let you out of Dallas. Over and out, over and out. They give us an abuse here, and it makes you sleepy, over and out. <clears throat> um, and this one, this next little letter gets um, especially <clears throat> crazy. He says, dear bro, I got too near the edge of the cliff and flew off. Excuse me. I have to burn this page and write a letter to God while it's on fire. Question is, God, where are you? Where the fuck on earth do you think you're doing, man? What the, uh, what? Um, we are in hell down here, hell down here, hell. You know, where's Superman? When Grandma showed up for a demented visit, she took me aside and says, you are surrounded by demons. God has his hand around your guts, and he is dragging you out of hell. Well, this is the longest ride out of hell I've ever heard about. And if I'm out of hell, if I'm out of hell, whose meat is that I smell frying? God has put his feet up and screwed the head off a bud and has drifted off into a nap while I sit here burning and stinking on this barbecue. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead in the story a little bit for the sake of time, but um, that, those were, were letters from the beginning of this, this man's journey in rehab. And um, So basically what you're missing is he goes into a real um, breakdown. I mean, he's already kind of having a breakdown, but it gets even worse, and it's pretty funny, and I, I would have loved to have time to read the whole thing. But um, <clears throat> So at this point, um, the narrator's in, in group, and he's listening to other people's stories, and so he, he begins relating the story of another guy whose name is Howard. Um, so here, here's, here's Howard. He says, <clears throat> I thought I was God. I looked in the mirror and said so. Looked in the mirror and said, you are God. When God decided to prove me wrong, it all came down like a mountain of dog shit on my head. They rolled me up and socked me with so many charges, including, at one point, second-degree murder. I'm lying in jail, and that cell is sucking the drugs and the fight and the soul right out of me and giving it to God. And God is squeezing it in his fingers, every last fiber of my soul and the almighty grip of truth. And the truth is that everything I've done, everything, every thought I've thought, every moment I've lived is shit turned to dust 
and dust blown away. God said, God, I said, squeeze my guts till you get tired. That's all I want now. Because at least it's real. It's true. It's got something to do with you. So then I think I died. I think I died in jail. My life itself just left me. And who you see before you is now someone else. So I wandered like a ghost through the court system and came out with a, with a sentence of 10 years. Did seven one day at a time. Prayed every day and every night, but only one prayer. Squeeze till you get tired, Lord. Kill me, Lord. I don't care, as long as it's you who kills me. Just got out of Pelican Bay Prison eight days ago, and rehab is a part of my parole. And nothing to show for 36 years on this earth, except that God is closer to me than my next breath. And that's all I will ever need or want. If you think I'm bullshitting, kiss my ass. My story is the amazing truth. (laughs) And then Cass, the narrator, he becomes very moved by this. And he goes back to telling his own story and signs off at the end, end of the story this way. Just to sketch out the last four years, broke, lost, detox, homeless in Texas, shot in the ribs by a 38, mooching off the charity of dad and Ukiah, detox again, run over, I think, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember. Then shot again and detox right now, one more time, again. Might have been one or two more detox trips and humiliating vacations at dad's in there. Shot twice by the same guy. More than once, I've woken up with some medical professional saying, you should be dead. And that's what it's going to say on my gravestone. I should be dead. Your brother in Christ, Cass. Um, so when I, when I read this story um, by this award-winning writer, I thought there has to be some level of irony in here. I mean, it's just so um, so true to, to the life experience of um, of, of dying and rising again in the gospel. And, um, but then, yeah, when you consider the man himself and his own journey, I mean, I, I really do believe this is an earnest, basically, conversion story. And I've heard um, Dennis Johnson in one of his um, readings, he, he mentioned that this narrator is like 62% autobiographical, <laughs> um, which I think is a really cool, cool way of, um, of describing that. So... Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, I think I think there's there's more than just a churchy testimony masquerading as fiction. There's humor in this journey, um, in this narrator's addictive thinking, um, but there's there's mostly the humor in the absurd thing, the most absurd thing, which is the fact that this narrator of all people is in Christ, and that he should be dead, um, but continues to live in spite of death's ever-present assaults on his life. Um, so a couple of notes from this story, things that I want that I, I, I really appreciate. Um, first of all, when Howard says um, somewhat crassly but truthfully that his sins are shit turned to dust and dust blown away, um, I just think that's such a beautiful image for the grace of God that everything we've done, both good and bad, is but dust and dust blown away, replaced by the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I do get sort of overwhelmed every year by this trip to New York City. And there's so many humans and so much achievement and buildings and clothes. And, um, and Johnson's work is such a powerful testimony to um, the concept that all of it is just temporary. And, and that it's what Christ did that matters. Um, to me, that's a huge relief. Um, it's like that, that app. Have you guys heard of We Croak? Um, it's, uh, it's, 
it's an app that pings you five times at random throughout the day just with a reminder that you're going to die. Um, so, and apparently it's great. I don't actually have it, but it's like I'm so nervous about speaking at Mockingbird, and it's like, well, I'm going to die, so let's do it. Um, so, but back to the story, I also want to make mention of the moment when Howard, um, that other character, Howard, feels like he's dying in the jail cell. Um, to me, that's just a 2018 translation of the verse um, where it says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, something, sometimes that process is extremely brutal and painful, um, but it's the passage to new life, to recovery. Um, Christ's message is not necessarily one of, of personal empowerment. It's not a message of how to live the perfect life. It's about death and resurrection. It's so simple. We, are, we die and are raised to new life with Christ. We should be dead. That's what it should say on our gravestones. Um, but then I also, going back a little bit further, I love the, the character of the grandmother in this story because she's so self-righteous and condemning, and she's absolutely the law. Um, that, that, you know, this is, you have to take, um, you have to stand on your own two feet and take responsibility for your life. And, um, but... But at the same time, as terrible as she is, she also has the faith to tell her somewhat pathetic grandson that God has him in his grip, despite all evidence to the contrary, and that he's being dragged out of hell. Um, I think it takes a lot of faith to say that to, some per- to another person who's struggling with self-sabotage and addiction. Um, so I, love, I just love the complication of her character. Um, like all the characters in Johnson's work, she's, she's at once a sinner and a saint. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like that's been a lot of content so far, and I, I yeah, I feel like it's maybe um, time to start just wrapping things up. Um, we've got one more story, um, so but yeah, if anybody wants to talk about um, Johnson's work or more passages after this, I, I'd love to stick around and chat. But um, I want to read um, I want to read the final bit from one of Johnson's final stories. Um, it's the last story in the last collection he, that he ever wrote, um, and. In a sense, it's sort of his, his benediction, um, because like I said in, in the intro, he died um, in this past May. Um, so it's called Doppelganger Poltergeist. Um, and it's a really wild story, and once again, I really wish we could sit here all afternoon and just read the whole thing, but um, maybe one day soon you'll find the time. Um, but for now, I just want to read the very end. So some context. Um, there are two characters that you need to know of. There's the narrator, again, like 62% Dennis Johnson. Um, and then there's his student, Marcus, Marcus Ahern. I'm not sure how to say his last name, but Marcus is a fantastic, award-winning writer, again, much like Johnson himself. Um, but in the face of all this worldly success, Marcus has no time for it. Um, he's instead caught up in the, this obsessive search for the truth about Elvis. Um, he's convinced that Elvis died in the late 50s and that he was re- replaced by an evil twin brother. Um, which he thinks could explain Elvis's sort of downward spiral um, in the twilight years of his career. Um, so Marcus goes crazy in this search for the truth about Elvis. He goes so far as to dig up Elvis's grave in Graceland at Graceland. Um, so here's the final section of that story. Um, when he was my student, I told Marcus Ahern that he, he wrote wonderfully. He said it wasn't the most important thing he did. I wonder if that isn't the secret to his greatness. I wonder if his mania doesn't ease the pressure of his genius and make it bearable. Our country's finest poet, Marcus Ahern, hasn't published a poem in 15 years, not a single line of verse. Two days ago, on Elvis's birthday, the Memphis police arrested him at Graceland. 
I wouldn't be surprised if the waking of Marcus's obsession about that, that Elvis beast coincided with another creative burst, a remarkable book. Two months ago, I got an email from Mark in which he picked up a very old thread. He said, the timeshare story. Remember the Brights, Ron and Opal? So this is referring to a, a moment earlier where a couple claimed to have seen the ghost of Elvis in Paradise, Texas um, in, in the 50s. <clears throat> The chronology there, Mark said, would indicate that in November 1958, Elvis was already a ghost. He stated that he'd been, walk that he'd been walking around the streets of paradise, deceased, in 1958. I answered instantly, pointing out that in order to accept this proof that Elvis was in paradise in 1958, we have to first accept life after death, paradise, ghosts, all of that. Mark answered a couple days later, I smile and shrug. Life after death, ghosts, paradise, eternity. Of course, we take all of that as granted. Otherwise, where's the fun? He closed the first message, peace, love, Elvis. The second, Elvis Lee, yours. <clears throat> so Elvis Lee, yours are the final printed words from this master writer, uh, Dennis Johnson. He's a National Book Award winner, Pulitzer finalist, um, I think there's really something significant in that mysterious, that kind of mischievous salutation on those two silly words. Um, to me, Elvis is a symbol for many things, but mainly for life after death, because the king lives on, and he will never die. Um, in many ways, it's almost like Elvis's life really started when it ended. Much of his career, after, of course, the glory days of his youth, was sort of that downward spiral, kind of a humiliating demise in the 70s. Um, But now we have impersonators and legends and ghost sightings and conspiracies. And I think Johnson's really having fun here and also proclaiming something powerful, albeit in a subtle literary way. He's saying that, um, that he lives on as surely as Elvis does and as surely as we will. Um, when the day comes that all of this, our suffering, our anxiety, our neuroticism and division, when all that passes away, Um, in Johnson's work, there's no sense of existential panic around the idea of death, about what happens after death. There is instead a very good sense of humor, um, which I think really comes from a, a, a real faith in whatever it is that comes after all of this. Um, so yeah, the last thing I'll say is I just, I for one, can't wait to sit down and enjoy a drink with Dennis Johnson once we're safe inside the pearly gates. Um, so yeah, that's all I have for you guys. I hope, I hope you enjoyed those stories and... Um, So yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming, and um, hope you're yeah enjoying this weekend. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you.